Dear Lord, we just thank you for your humble servant, Anne. Thank you for the words that you have spoken into her heart, dear Lord, the words that you want us to hear today, that you have given her. So, dear Lord, I just pray that you just move her aside and speak through her. Speak your words of power, your words of wisdom. Dear Lord, you are holy, you are worthy, dear Lord. And we just thank you for being in this place this time. Thank mm -hmm. you for speaking to us. Thank you for wanting to commune with us, dear Lord, yes. and be with us and counsel us and lead us mm -hmm. and guide us. Dear Lord, you are the King of all kings and yes. the Lord of all lords, dear Lord. And we just want to worship you and praise you and learn more about you mm -hmm. and know you in that intimate way that you want to know us, dear Lord. We want to meet you in this place today, dear Lord. So I just pray for these words that will be spoken today, that they will... Um, they will be meaningful to us, dear Lord. They will change our ways. They will convict us. They will move us. They yes. will pierce us like that two-edged sword, dear Lord, yes. that you will speak to us in a mighty way. So, dear Lord, we just thank you for the anointing that, uh, that you have put on and, dear Lord, so that she can speak those words for your glory and for mm -hmm. your will to be done in our lives. And we pray all these things in the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us and in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen. Yeah, I'm going to keep them. <laughs> All right. Well, can y'all believe that we're in our fifth week? It's gone by fast, and we have learned a lot. I hope you have and have been blessed by the teachings. I, I know that I have been. Um, and I just want to remind you of where we've been. If you've missed a few weeks and it maybe have missed a piece of the furniture, an important aspect of the tabernacle. So I want you to remember that you have come through the gate, the eastern gate, Jesus Christ being the way, the truth and the life. You have entered into his tabernacle and you stopped in the outer court and you stopped at the brazen altar where there was the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And at that altar, you were justified. You accepted Christ as your Savior, so now you have salvation. And then you kept going, and I hope you kept going to the brazen laver, the place where the priest would wash their hands and their feet to be clean so that they could be used for service unto the Lord. And so at that laver, you are sanctified. So you're justified, you're sanctified. And then you entered in through another veil. And this veil brought you into the holy place. And remember, the outer court was an open area. It was surrounded by the white curtains, but there was no covering on top. But as you enter into the holy place, as you did today with the veil, it is a place of covering. And it has all the same colors as the gate from the beginning, the red, the blue, the purple, the gold, and then the white. And last week, you learned about the lampstand. The gold, the pure gold lampstand, which represented the sevenfold spirit of God. Do y'all remember that? And that lampstand was the only thing that lit up the holy place. If that lampstand was not in the holy place, it would have been pitch black dark. But God had told Moses, he had instructed him, you are to make this lampstand and you are to continually fill it up with oil. And then when the wicks burn out, you are to put new wicks and to continually fill it up so that you may have light in this place. And I'm going to suggest to you today, when we get to the table of showbread and the altar of incense next week, that every piece of furniture in this holy place plays off of each other. It's not one on its own. Because if you didn't have the lampstand when you entered into the holy place, you wouldn't see, Right? And so today we're going to find ourselves at the table of showbread. And I want you to pull out your little diagram from that first week if you still have it. And in that diagram, you remember, 
It was empty with all the little words. And I want you to see that here we are now in the holy place. You came to the altar, the laver, and now you're in the holy place. And we started at the lampstand, which was right up here. And directly across from the lampstand, I'm holding it upside down for y'all, is the table of showbread. So this table of showbread, which we're going to learn about today, is directly across from the lampstand. It is on the north part of the holy place. So we're going to start in Exodus 25 today. So if you'll go ahead and turn with me there, if you have your Bibles. And we're going to learn about this piece of furniture. Exodus 25. And we are going to start in verse 23. And remember, these are God's divine instructions to his servant Moses. He tells him, make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Also make around it a rim, a hand breadth wide, and put a gold molding on the rim. Make four gold rings for the table and fasten them to the four corners where the four legs are. The rings are to be close to the rim to hold the poles used in carrying the table. Make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and carry the table with them, and make its plates and dishes of pure gold, as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of offerings. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be for me at all times. Okay. So we have this table, the table of showbread. It's in the holy place. It's directly across from the lampstand, and it's on the north part of the tabernacle. Okay? And what's it made of? Acacia acacia wood, which you all remember, what does the acacia wood represent? It's incorruptible. It's not easily destroyed by insects. It withstood storms and winds. And it's overlaid with gold. You see our pretty gold. They would make these thin sheets of gold and overlay this wood. Okay, it's two cubits long and a half. I don't know why they can't give it normal measurements, but they didn't. And it's a cubit and a half in height, okay? And then it has a crown ledge. And honestly, this piece of furniture was made many years ago, and we're going to be updating it. But actually, what I found is, is that it had a gold crown ledge, then it had little rim, and then there was another gold crown ledge. Okay? Did y'all catch that in the reading? And there was this little rim that was a hand breadth wide. So you had these two crowns, one right here, a little space, and one right here. And then on the table, there were also utensils, right? Four utensils, it said, made out of pure gold. Recognize everything in this holy place is made out of pure gold. There are no impurities, no dross, nothing. It is 100% completely pure. And so this table held what? Bread. The bread probably was much bigger than this, but this is our bread. And it held 12 loaves of bread, which is called showbread. And it was in the holy place, and it was used by the priest as a service to the Lord. Okay? So we say, well, how is this foreshadow Jesus Christ? Because we know everything in the tabernacle 
points to Jesus, right? We've learned that every week. So we have the incorruptible man of God, son of man, covered in deity. He's inlaid with the crown because he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He's from the lineage of David. He has poles on it because when you are in Christ, he will never leave you nor forsake you. You carry him with you everywhere you go. So that's Jesus. And then we had these vessels, these pure gold vessels. And it says that they were dishes. There were spoons. The dishes were used to carry the bread in because no human hand could touch this stuff. Once it was being used for the Lord, it had to be in pure gold as an offering unto the Lord. So they had these dishes. And then they had these pans or spoons. And later you're going to learn and you're going to see in a scripture that we look at in Leviticus that on this table they would also put in these pans and spoons frankincense. Some believe and lots of teachings say that they would take the frankincense and sprinkle it on the blood. It doesn't say clearly. Some believe that it sat on the table with the bread. I don't believe it matters and we're going to get to the reason for that in a little bit. But you also had pitchers and you had bowls, and these were used for drink offerings that were a part of the daily service to the Lord that we'll talk about in a minute as well. So this table was used for holding bread and all of these utensils and used for daily offerings. Okay, but what about this bread? Because the bread's got to mean something, right? He just didn't put it there randomly. So let's turn to Leviticus 24, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 9 about this bread. Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. And this, remember, this is the Lord telling Moses. He says, Take fine flour and bake 12 loaves of bread using two tenths of an ephah for each loaf. Set them in two rows, six in each row, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And along each row, put some pure incense as a memorial portion to represent the bread and to be an offering made to the Lord by fire. This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. It belongs to Aaron and his sons who are to eat it in a holy place because it is a most holy part of their regular share of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. All right, so we see this bread. He tells them, not only just put bread on it, but I'm going to give you a specific recipe on how this bread's to be made. And they called them cakes. And it's believed that these cakes were unleavened. Now, it doesn't say specifically that it's unleavened, but later in the scriptures it talks about that there cannot be any leaven um, as an offering to the Lord. So it's suspected that there's no leaven, um, which represents what? Sin. Anything artificial. So this bread didn't have any sin, anything artificial in it. It was made out of fine flour. Did you catch that? How do you get fine flour? You take the grain, you beat it, you grind it, and you crush it. They say it'd be so fine that you'd hold it in your hand, it would just, just fall right through your fingers. So you have no, nothing artificial, and this flour, this grain's been beaten, crushed, and ground. And then it says you're to bake it. Well, to bake it means you put it over the fire, right? 
fire, agony, suffering. And then I read also that it says they would come and they would pierce the bread. Because if they didn't pierce it up, it'd get too thick or big. And I sat there and I thought, wow. Not only does the table point to Jesus, but the bread does as well. You see, Psalm 22, verse 16 and 18, which is the psalm about Jesus' suffering, says this. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. Jesus Christ was Son of God and Son of Man. He knew no sin. He was tempted in every way and always overcame. He was beaten. He was crushed. He was spit at. And He was pierced for my sins and for your sins. You know what I love about when I read that they had to pierce this bread? I thought about, you know what, when you're walking in pride, it's kind of like you're a big old fat balloon, isn't it? But if you pierce it, it deflates. You see, when you come to God, there can be no pride. Because you've chosen to get up on that altar of sacrifice and to not only receive his sacrifice, but to sacrifice your ways, your thoughts, your feelings, and your will for his. And so as we come to study the showbread and come into the holy place, we still can't have any pride. We have to be humble because if we are humble, in due time the Lord will lift us up, right? He'll teach us and show us things. And this bread was set out continually before the Lord. Did you catch that? They would come and they would bring it on these gold plates, hot and fresh, freshly baked, and they would put it on the table of showbread. And then a week later, on the Sabbath, they would do the same thing. And these priests, Aaron and his sons, were allowed to eat it. They would eat it. And I sit there and think, wow, they ate this bread that sat out for a week? I don't know about you, if I leave one of the, even this bread out for one day, I come home and it is hard and yucky and my kids complain. But yet they were allowed to eat it a week later. And we're going to see the significance of that in a minute. You know, also this bread, all of it was to be the same size. There wasn't like one big piece, one little piece. And you know what I believe that tells us? That God sees us all one and the same. There's no partiality. You see, these 12 pieces of bread represented the 12 tribes that encamped around the tabernacle. It represented God's provision, His heavenly provision to His people. And many of the studies that I read, it said when the Israelites would look at that table, they would remember God's abundant provision for them through the manna and that He was always with them and He supplied their needs. And so here, they're all the same size because He had no partiality among His tribes, among His people. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says this, For we being many are one. We are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. When you come into the sanctuary of the Lord, we are one. Jesus Christ is the head and we are his body. He doesn't say, oh, Ann, I favor you more. No. God's no respecter of any persons. He loves us all the same. 
He died once and for all for the forgiveness of every one of our sins. So there's no partiality. I want you all to turn with me now to John 6. And we're going to see what Jesus said about the bread. John 6. And as you're getting there, I want to kind of set up the story for you a little bit. I want you to remember that at the beginning of this scripture in John 6, um, we're going to start in verse 25 if you want to go ahead and get there, but at the beginning of this scripture, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's just taken those five loaves of bread and the two fish, and he's multiplied it for all those thousands of people. And the people are like, yeah, we like this guy. We want to make him king. He'd be a good king. And so at that point, after multiplying all this food and feeding these thousands, he withdraws himself, which Jesus did many times after he was spent out. He went to go get back with the Father, get filled up, hear the Father's will, get instructions. And at that point, the disciples got on a boat, crossed the lake, and they were going to Capernaum. Well, a few hours later, winds start coming up, storm a little bit, the waves get high, and Jesus starts walking out on the water. And once they recognized him, they were a little afraid. They said, well, why don't you come on into the boat? And at that point, it says immediately they get to the other place. This has nothing to do with my story, but I feel like I'm supposed to say this. I never read immediately that right when Jesus got in the boat, it immediately, like warp speed, gets to the other side. I want to tell you, when you invite Jesus into your situation, whatever it is, your marriage, your health, your finances, your future, he's immediately going to be with you and strengthen you and get you to that place. It might not feel like immediately, but there are things going on in the spiritual realm that he's working out on behalf of your good. Okay, so they immediately get over there. And at that point, I know that doesn't go, but it's one of those things when the Lord shows you something, you just got to share it. Okay, so they get to the other side. And then people start coming and they realize, well, wait a minute. Where's this guy who fed all these people? Look, they're on the other side. And so they go and they find Jesus. They're seeking him out. These thousands of people who've been fed by these two fish and these five loaves of bread. And so that's where we're going to pick up in verse 25. 625. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? You remember? Because he'd gone off by himself and he'd walked on the water and gotten in the boat and immediately got on the other side. And it says, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spools, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, well, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, well, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So think about that right there. They, they just partaken of this miracle and they weren't even recognizing it. And Jesus, knowing all things, points it out to him and says, Hey, you're not coming to get from me because of the miraculous sign. You're just coming on your, seeking your own welfare because you've eaten and it was good. 
And so then they start asking, well, what can we do? What kind of works? And isn't that what flesh always does? What can I do, God, to earn your favor? What can I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus just puts them in their place. You must believe. Simple act. You believe in the one who is sent that has the seal of the Father's approval. And so, look, they're still asking for this miraculous sign, right? Because they point to the Israelites, their forefathers, who ate this manna, this bread in the desert. Do y'all remember what the manna is? The manna, the bread of heaven, that God the Father supplied every day except for the Sabbath for the Israelites. They would take this white coriander seed bread and they would make cakes of it. And they would eat it. But they couldn't get it on the Sabbath day because if they... um, God wasn't going to allow them to do that work on the Sabbath, so they'd have to collect it the day before. But every day when they ate this bread, they had to eat it to the full. There was no leftovers because if it was leftover, it would get stale. It said worms would get in it, and it'd get stinky. So this is the manna, the bread that they're asking Jesus to give. Remember, they've just eaten their fill. And so here Jesus replies to them in verse 32. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they say, okay, sir, from now on, give us this bread. And Jesus declares, I am the bread of life He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So when these these people who had been pressing into Jesus, who had been seeking him out, when they said, where where have you been, Lord? How would you get here? These very people say, well, just give us this bread then. And Jesus answers them and points to himself and says, I am the bread of life which comes down from heaven. No longer pointing to the manna, the one that could go stale and get worms and wouldn't be good the next day. But he says, I am the bread of life. And then throughout the scripture in these next verses, he starts telling them about the Father's will and that the Father sent him and that the Father would draw those who he called by the power of the Holy Spirit to him. And he's he's going on. And in about verse 41, the Jews begin to grumble, grumble. Because they say, he says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I come, came down from heaven? So they start grumbling about Jesus' teaching. They start saying, who does he think he is? This is Joseph's son. We know his mom and dad. And then Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's the Holy Spirit. And I will raise him up at the last day. And so he starts to tell them, I'm the one from God. If you believe in me, you can have everlasting life. And in verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. He reiterates it to them again. He is making a point because they're not getting it, y'all. They're thinking purely in physical terms. They're thinking, well, maybe Jesus is going to rain down some new manna for us. I mean, he just fed us. And he says, again, your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. 
But here is the bread. Here is the bread, the bread of life that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then he says this, This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. I want you to take note that that word eats in verse 50 is that word trogos. And that word literally means to chomp to chew, to crunch. And so he was telling them in the first part, your forefathers ate this manna and they died. But you're going to be able to eat from one, chomp, chew, crunch on, and not die. So their mind is going wacko. Woo! Cannibalism? He's saying in his flesh is that bread that we're going to chomp on and eat. And if we do that, we're not going to die. Then let's see what else he says in verse 50, 53. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one, me and you, who feeds on me will live because of me. What does that sound like Jesus is prophetically speaking of? The communion table. He's saying, if you chomp on and physically chew and crunch on my body, which is my flesh, which is the bread of heaven, the bread of life. You can be raised up. You can have God's kind of life, the Zoe kind of life. You can have eternal life. And I will abide in you, and you will abide in me. I'm going to propose to you that this table of showbread represents the communion table as well. And you'll probably think, well, Ann, where's the blood? Well, guess what? I can show you. Numbers 28, verse 7. The Lord is instructing Moses and talking to him about the daily offerings of the tabernacle. But they were to give to the Lord every day. And let me just give you a little background. God had instructed them to every day at morning and at twilight to offer a pure and spotless lamb as a burnt offering. Okay? Every day. Some believe it was at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., the exact times that Jesus Christ got on the cross and then when he died. That's what some people say. So they had to offer this lamb every day continually as an atonement for the sins of the people. Well, in addition to this, they also had to offer a drink offering. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 7. Well, I'll start with 6. Talking about the lamb. This is the regular burnt offering instituted at Mount Sinai as a pleasing aroma, an offering made to the Lord by fire. Remember, the brazen altar. The accompanying drink offering is to be a quarter of a hen of fermented drink with each lamb. Pour out the drink offering to the Lord at the sanctuary. Sanctuary, the holy place. 
You remember the utensils that were talked about that were to be placed? The pitchers, the bowls, the plates? Well, many theologians, historical teachings teach that this drink offering was done at the table of showbread. And what was the drink offering? They would take one container, one pitcher of wine, and pour it into another. Now, it doesn't say for certain that it's at the table, but it does say in Scripture that it cannot be done at the altar of incense, which is what we're going to get to next week. So, logical thinking, there's only one other table in the holy place because I don't think you'd put a pitcher on a lampstand, right? So, here you have the bread, and here you have the wine. You have the body of Christ and the blood of Christ represented right here in front of the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, His covenant that is made, a continual reminder, the blood and the bread of Jesus Christ. And you've got to remember here that when Jesus was talking to all these people who had pressed in to hear Him, He was speaking to them about their spiritual man. Later in the scripture, he says, the flesh profiteth nothing. So he is speaking to them spiritually. You eat of me spiritually. You drink of me spiritually, and I will give you life. And he didn't come to just give us life. He came to give us God's kind of life, the life of peace, the life of joy, the life of victory, the life of freedom in the Holy Spirit the Zoe kind of life, the abundant life. And so those who commune with Christ, they don't lack any good thing. They have it all because you are partaking of the bread of heaven, the Son of God that came down to demonstrate the love of the Father. And so we have the communion table. Also, I read, and I thought this was so interesting, that the first time a table is mentioned in the Word of God is, guess what? The table of showbread. And you think about, what does a table mean to you? Communion, fellowship, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up. I know we're all probably already planning, where am I going to go? What family's going to be there? What's the spread I'm going to make? Because we're going to all gather at that table and eat together. My little... My youngest daughter, Mary Blake, she loves sitting at the table and eating. I don't really know why. I mean, we try to do that as much as we can. And some weeks when we're real busy taking the kids here and there for sports, she'll say, Mama, we hadn't sat at the table and eaten. And when she said that one day, I thought, she wants to fellowship as a family. She wants us to commune with each other. Is that not just like our father? He didn't come and send us to this earth, make us in his likeness to just leave us here. Think back to the Garden of Eden. He came every day to commune and fellowship with his creation made in his likeness. He wants to commune and fellowship with us. And through this spiritual blueprint of the tabernacle, he shows us how. And one of the ways is at the table of showbread. And not only does this table represent communion, but it represents the Word of God, Jesus Christ. You'll see later in Revelations in a scripture I'm going to read that His name is the Word of God. He is the Word made flesh that came and dwelt among us. So this bread also represents the Word of God. And I want you to remember that the priest would come every Sabbath and they'd eat, right? 
They'd eat of that bread, and it's still a mystery on how that bread stayed fresh. I read in some commentaries that they really believe that that bread was just as fresh seven days later as when it had just been baked, that it was still hot and still warm. And these priests would come and eat it in a holy place for their strength as an offering to the Lord, we're going to later see. And I started thinking about my life. Well, is every time I open the Word of God, the bread of God, is it fresh to me? And I want to tell you, <laughs> growing up in church, being active in youth group, all that, for 28 years, it was never real fresh to me. I'm just going to be honest. I'd learn the stories, you know, Jonah and David, and I'd sing the songs. And I'm just going to be honest. It didn't do much for me. I'd get in, on, in it when I went to church or when I'd go to youth group, my youth pastor would be like, get your Bibles out, read. But when they talk about daily time, go eat the Word every day, I'm like, yeah, right. I'd try it for about a week and I'd fail because it wasn't exciting to me. You remember when I said that the table of showbread was right across from the lampstand? Without the lampstand, you couldn't have seen to go to the table of showbread, could you? Been pitch black. You know what, that lampstand, what did Pam say it represented? The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. You see, God never intended for us to read this word without His Holy Spirit. Never intended. It would not have been fresh. It would not have been good. It would not have been life-giving. He intends for us every time we open His word that we should have the Holy Spirit as, as, as a teacher to us. That's His role. He is called the Spirit of Truth. He opens this Word to us and makes it alive. And just like that lampstand, it was continually filled. We are to daily ask that to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Less of me, God, and more of you. You see, it wasn't until I was about 28 when I even realized who the Holy Spirit is. I mean, I knew He convicted me because I'd feel that. And that's it started my journey to say, you know what? I want it all. I want to be able to read this word. I want it to be illuminated into my life that I will actually want to eat of this. But it starts at the lampstand where you say, Holy Spirit, you come and illuminate the truth to me. Come and fill me up continually. Make it be more of you and less of me so that when I open this word, it will be fresh every day. Psalm 18, 28 says, You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. I encourage you. If you have trouble with the Word, I did, and sometimes I still do. And when I'm having trouble, you know what I immediately think? Holy Spirit, I need you. You're the Spirit of truth. You're my counselor. You're my comforter. You're my teacher. Will you come and teach me? And I I, I tell you, based on experience, He does that. He has taught me the Word of God. My mom still just fathoms at the, thing, at the idea that I get up and teach a Bible study. I mean, seriously. And I can tell you, it's none of me. I wasn't a very good student. If I'm honest with you, I was actually in special ed classes in first grade. Let me tell you, you got any children who are struggling? God can do a work. If He's got a purpose, a plan, and a destiny for you, He can turn it around in a second. And it's by the power of His Spirit and the truth in His Word. 
Okay. So what about just information that we gain from the Bible? Just information. Don't we sometimes just gain information, head knowledge? You see, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to not just give you information and facts. He wants to give you revelation. He wants to take all the stuff that's in your mind and transport it 17 inches into your heart to make it come alive to you. You know, Jesus talked about this to John 5, in John 5, verse 39, to the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees knew the Scriptures. They'd been born and bred it. They knew it inside and out. And you know what Jesus said to them? You diligently study the Scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Do you see the difference there? These Pharisees had information, but yet they didn't have revelation of the Son of God standing in front of them. God desires for us to have revelation with His Word. And why? If we don't have revelation of the truth of the Word of God, it short-circuits God's results. It short-circuits God's results. I, think about people you've met, and, we've, and we, teachers you've heard even, not in this church, praise the Lord, but in some other places, and they just got all these facts, and they're just regurgitating, and you walk out, and you're like, oh, I didn't get anything. You know, well, number one, you might not have asked, but number two, it might have been they just give you lots of information. But God intends for it to be revelation. Even Paul addressed this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He said, my message and my preaching... We're not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He didn't go out and preach with these wise, intellectual words. He spoke the truth, and because he had had a revelation of who Jesus Christ was and a revelation to his teachings, when he taught, it brought the Spirit involvement in it, and it was powerful. The lame were healed. People were delivered. Freedom came. But it all started with revelation. And the second thing that revelation does is it makes us respond. When you have a revelation of the Father's love for you, individually, not for someone else, but for me, that He loves me, that He created me before the foundations of the world, that He has a plan and a purpose for my life, that I'm not some random person just put on earth at this time, that He knew exactly what He was doing, that He knew every hair on my head. He knows every thought. His thoughts towards me outnumber the grains of sand. And that if I was the only one on this earth, He still would have come down and been the bread of heaven for me. When you get a revelation of that in your heart, there's one thing that will happen. You're going to respond. That's why we need these scriptures illuminated in our life. To not short-circuit God's results and to respond. All right, I'm going to kind of switch here gears, and I'm going to be a cheerleader for y'all. I'm not going to do any jumps because I'll probably strain some muscles. But in this next aspect, as we close out here in a little bit, I want to cheer you on 
to want to eat the Word of God. I want to cheer you on. And the reason why is because when you start eating of the Word, fresh words every day, not just once a week, it's going to enable you to live the Spirit-filled life. It's going to enable you to walk in health and strength, not only for your own life, but for others as well as a priest being used for God's service. You remember the laver that we talked about a few weeks ago? That laver washed us, made us clean. It sanctified us. You know what the table does for us? It's the bread of maintenance. It helps us maintain the right path of the Lord. Okay, so why? You say, well, why? Give me some reasons on why I want to eat this bread. Well, number one, God's method of bringing forth life is His Word. I will repeat that. God's method of bringing forth life is His Word. Think about it. When He created the earth, when He created us, what did He do? He spoke and it was done. Think about when Gabriel came to Mary and said, Mary, you found favor in the eyes of the Lord and you're going to bear his son named Jesus. And she, her response was, so be it unto me as the Lord has spoken. That word spoken over her planted a seed within her that brought forth the word of God into the earth. His word, he always produces life through his word. Okay. So 1 Peter 2.23, y'all don't have to turn these. We're going to fly through these for a second. 1 Peter 2.23 produces a born-again experience through his word. It says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. God brings forth life through his word. He makes us born again through this imperishable seed, through his word. Okay, John 15, 3, the word of God cleanses us. He said, John spoke to his disciples, you are already clean because of the words I have spoken to you. His words cleanse us. Matthew 13, 23, and I think I have these written down for y'all. says, the one who received the seed that fell on good soul is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. The Word of God matures you up. It makes you fruitful. No longer will you be a little baby Christian drinking little spiritual milk, but you will grow up and you will eat the Word and it will produce a harvest in your life. And I know some of you are saying, well, I'm a baby. I'm still drinking the milk. There's no condemnation. Every one of us has been a baby Christian still drinking the spiritual milk. Just like Pam showed last week on the lampstand, the buds, the blooms, and the blossoms, right? And she said the bloods represents the little maybe baby Christians, the blooms maybe a little bit more chore, and the blossoms, like we've got many in here, who are full of the Lord. It doesn't matter where you are. you got to start somewhere. It didn't start for me until I was about 28, 29. Sometimes I still struggle. You just got to start. A bud, a bloom, a blossom. It will mature you up. 
And then John 8, 31 and 32 says this. Make sure I'm on the right scripture here. He's talking to the Jews who had believed him. And Jesus says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I want you to catch that. If you hold to my teachings, if you come and you eat of this word, if you keep eating of it, which my words are spirit and they're life, they're going to feed your spiritual man. As you continue to do that, the truth of the living word will set you free. What area are you in bondage to? There's something in every one of our lives that we can be in bondage to. Sin, insecurity, worthlessness, shame. Jesus said, you hold to my teachings and the truth will set you free. So it makes us born again. It cleanses us. It matures us. It frees us. In Psalm 107:20, he sent forth his word and healed them. He sends forth his word and heals us. You see, God's word has the very power in it to fulfill itself. It's almost like you see the description of the word being like seeds. It's almost like you see God up there and as he sprinkles his words out, these seeds, life comes forth. He brings forth life through his word. He creates with His Word. He recreates with His Word. So why wouldn't we want to get in it? And you know how it applies to our own life? When we take this Word of God and we speak it out, it's like we're taking the very seeds of God and we are sprinkling it into our situations. We're taking this Word and we're sprinkling it into our marriage who's struggling. And we're just not finding that intimacy and that love like we used to. You take this word and you sprinkle it in there. And God says, I will watch over it and I'm going to bring it to completion and I'm going to perform that very thing you spoke. Or your children. You know, I I tell you, I'm going to share this story. A few years ago, Norris, our middle child, he's just small. He's got my daddy's build. I mean, he's like this big. I mean, he's just skinny, skinny, skinny. And then my girls are the opposite. They got mine. You know, they struggle a little bit, you know. And I remember my mom who just worries. I mean, grandmother, you know, she loves my children. She just, oh, Ann, you need to go get them tested. Something's not right, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, what does that do to mama? Oh, maybe something's not right. And I remember my husband and I, we just said, no, mm mm-mm. The doctor says he's fine. He's just not going to be a big man. And we said, we're going to get a scripture. We're just going to speak it over him. We're going to take these seeds and sprinkle it on our son. So we prayed every night and we said, Jesus Christ grew in wisdom and stature and gained favor with God and man. We declare our son will grow in wisdom and stature and gain favor with God and man. A year later, when we took him to the doctor, he had grown more that year than any other time. Okay? You take the word, you sprinkle the seeds, God produces the life. We're just obedient. Okay? You know this crown rim? Actually, the two crown rims that are on this table? You see, they think they put the crowns there because they had to transport this table. They had to take it from place to place. When God's cloud would lift, they'd have to move with it if they wanted to stay in the presence of God. 
Well, the bread would be on it. Well, the bread couldn't fall to the ground. And so these crowns would hold it in place so that when they take, carried it up with these poles, you know, nothing could touch it or defile it. These breads would be, stay in place. That crown represents that God always watches over his word. He's not going to let it fall to the ground void or empty. He watches over it. So he brings forth life through his word. I'm going to spur you on with another. He brings victory through his word. Psalm 23. I prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. That doesn't make a lot of sense. (laughs) You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Won't my enemies come and overtake me? Mm -mm. Not if you're eating the word. Not if you take that word as a sword of the Spirit and use it against the trials and the fiery darts and the schemes of the enemy that comes against you. Ephesians 6, y'all know it, the armor of God. The one offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He gives you victory through the Word of God, just like in my son Norris's life. Revelation 19.15. Man, I love this scripture. Jesus, I mean, John is having this vision of the rider on the white horse, and he says this. He says, He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. A sword is coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ, whose very name is the Word of God, and it strikes down the nations. And that sword one day is going to make every nation, every tribe, and every person confess that He is Lord and bow down to His knee. Now, if Jesus Christ needs to use a sword to come out of His mouth, why wouldn't we? Take up the sword. I'm going to tell you, and we all have battles I, we, my husband and I, we went through a really big battle. He decided to close down his business, and we're sitting there thinking, what's going to go on? But we knew it was the Lord calling us, and so we had to walk through some major faith and say, okay, Lord, we're, we're trusting you to supply our needs. We're trusting you to lead us. We'll go where you send us. If you send us away, we'll go. If we stay, we'll stay. And it took me and him and really a lot of my prayer warrior, priestly friends to come around me and to take up the swords and battle this with us. And guess what? We've come on the other side. Praise the Lord. He's gotten a great job. He'll start next month. But it took faith. It took eating this word because I can tell you the thoughts came. Like how are we going to supply? How are we going to do this for our children? We've got bills to pay. We've got things to do. So I ate this word like never before. And guess what? I truly did stay in peace. It really did work. I had my moments, some friends can tell you. But when I was weak, they'd come and hold up my hands with the Word of God so that I could be victorious. And so we use the Word as a sword. I want to encourage you that if you're in a battle, the only way the enemy is going to win is if you quit. The only way the enemy's going to win is if you quit. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's not. You have to persevere. 
And you've got to keep coming to the table. Keep coming, communion. Keep coming, having fellowship. Keep coming to be strengthened. You see, because when you take this word and you use it as a sword, it renews your mind. It produces life. And it tells the enemy what you believe. And I don't mean you just come and read it. I mean you speak it. There is power in speaking the word of God. Okay, so he is the bread of life. He is the word. I want to ask you now, what are you eating to satisfy your spiritual hunger? If we were made in the likeness of God, which we were, and he desires fellowship and intimacy with us, then we will not be fulfilled unless we have that with him. There is a place in our heart that only he can fill. We can try to fill it with our husbands, and I'm no offense Bradley, but you eventually realize that he can't fill it. You try to fill it with money, with a bigger house, better car, better clothes, and you realize shortly it might bring temporary satisfaction. It doesn't fill it. Only he can fill it. So I'm going to ask you, what are you filling yourself right now, feeding yourself for that hunger? You see, Jesus Christ even told the devil, when he was out in the wilderness and he was tempted, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We cannot live on physical things to sustain us and strengthen us. And praise God he didn't just leave us here without it. Praise the Lord that he gave us his word to fill us and satisfy us and strengthen us. You see, I'm going to ask you, when you go to Thanksgiving this year, are you going to sit down at the table and just look at that good old spread of mashed potatoes and gravy and turkey and dressing? I tell you, I'm not. Y'all might be better than me. I'm not. And when they bring out the pie, I'm going to eat it too. You don't sit there and take in the sights and the smells and just like, ooh, so good, and then not partake. See, that's, Jesus doesn't want that, us to do that either with his word. He wants us to love his word, to eat his word, to partake of it. Y'all remember Jeremiah, the priest and the prophet? He was a young man and he had a hard job. He had to go to his very own people and he had to tell them, you gotta, I'm warning you, you've turned from God and you've got to come back or there's going to be some consequences to this. And you know what happened? Those people didn't even listen to him. And so Jeremiah says this in 15, 16, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. So when Jeremiah found himself in a tough place, he says, You know what brings me joy and delight? Your words, and I will eat them. And then what about Joshua? I always think about poor Joshua. The successor to Moses. Moses, who went in and freed the Israelites, who parted the Red Sea, who had face-to-face encounters with God, who brought back down the tablets of stone and and had the um, information of the tabernacle given to him. The one who struck the rock and water came out. Moses. And here Joshua was going to have to be his successor. Do you think he was a little intimidated and insecure? I would. And you know what I think the key to Joshua's success is? It's found in 1.8. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, 
Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. You'll be strong and courageous. That word meditate means to chew on, to eat. It means to mutter out loud, to get in it and eat it, throw it up, and eat it again. That's a graphic illustration about the cow eating the chud. You know, what is it called? It's cud. Chewing it a while, throwing it up and eating again. Lena described that very beautifully last year, if you weren't here. But that's what it means to meditate. You chew on it. Jesus said, whoever eats and chews on my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. You know, but it's hard. We all admit it. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to do that daily. You know, even when Jesus said that, guess what happened some scriptures later? It says that many started grumbling and complaining. They said, this is too hard. This teaching's too rough. I don't get it. And they turned away. The very ones that were chasing after him, where'd you go, Jesus? They turned away. Then think about the Israelites out in the desert. They got their manna every day except for the Sabbath, and then the day before God would supply double their need. They start grumbling, complaining. And God, it made them mad. You see, Jesus said the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and few will find it. You know, coming into this holy place, I'm just going to be honest, it's not always easy. It takes total complete surrender. Not just partial. It takes total. It takes total commitment on your part to walk with the Lord, to stay in His Word on a day-to-day basis. And it's a narrow path. That's what Jesus said. It's a narrow path. You know, in the tabernacle, you had this big outer court, and many people were coming in and going out, you know, with, with all their offerings. But only the priest came through that narrow way into the holy place. But Jesus says, it'll bring you life to the full, my kind of life. You see, he's given us instructions. You want more of the presence of God in your life? He says, come and eat, partake of me. I'll remain in you and you'll remain in me. And when I abide in you and you abide in me, you're going to bear much fruit. But don't we sometimes grumble, complain, Maybe not literally. We might not say, well, I don't want the Word of God. I mean, if you're here on a Tuesday for a Bible study, you're probably not going to say that. But we grumble in other ways. When we leave our Bible just sitting there for days on end and we don't pick it up because it's not important enough. Instead of running to God and His Word when we have a trouble in our marriage, a friend, and work, we run to others, which, yes, great. God uses others. Praise the Lord. We're the body of Christ. But what if every time, the first time we had an issue, we ran to the Word of God first? You know, I heard someone say that there's over 8,000 promises of God in here. Promises. Which the Word tells us, if there is a promise, it is a yes and an amen in Jesus Christ for His glory. Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, resurrected. These promises are yes and amen in Him. And then I read somewhere too that 80%, at least 80% of God's will is found in His Word. 
So what if we quit grumbling and saying, you know what, maybe that word's not good enough for me, and we started running to it? You remember in that scripture in Leviticus, it talked about that there was an incense on the table of showbread. And I've read that it was frankincense. And you think about frankincense, wasn't that one of the things that the Magi brought to Jesus when he was born? And I started thinking, and and this is what I read, is that frankincense typifies the sweet fragrance of Christ. It's a sweet smell. You know, sometimes when we go to the Word and we're struggling, we ask for the Holy Spirit, illuminate this truth to me, be my teacher. But also, we just say, sprinkle some frankincense on it for me today. Make it sweet. David said that the Word was sweeter than honey to him, more precious than gold. You see, we are to see Jesus in this Word from beginning to end. It all points to Him. We just have to have eyes to see Minds to perceive. And you know that we can take this bread, this word with us wherever we go. We can hide it in our heart so that we might not sin against the Lord. When it's hidden in your heart, it goes with you wherever you go, into every situation, into every relationship, into every store, into every decision, when it's hidden in your heart. You know, other ways that make the word good and tasteful and alive to us, I think is represented in the utensils, the plates, the, the bowls, the pitchers. I think that can represent all the other resources God gives us for his word. We live in a time that we have an abundant supply of resources to teach us the word of God. We have anointed Bible studies. There are anointed preachers and teachers. You can get on YouTube and watch all sorts of people that bring you a fresh word every day. You can read magazines. See, God it says, you know what? Just come. Just come and eat. Now, I don't think there's anything that replaces this, but he'll use the utensils to feed it to you. But we have a choice to make, don't we? We can choose to eat the Word, or we can choose not to. This past weekend, a group of ladies and I went to Birmingham to the Recreate Women's Conference, and we just had an awesome time. It was a time of worship and good eating and and some anointed teachings. And one of the teachers that just really spoke to me, her name is Charlotte Gamble, and she's a young British woman, and she's just one of those fiery teachers And she gave an example that I'm going to steal from her today because as she gave this example, it just really resonated in me and I just want to share it with you. But I want to ask you, have you ever bought tickets or wanted to go, let's say, to the Performing Arts Center to see a performance or maybe a game or maybe to the Shakespeare Festival? And well, when you go to buy those tickets online, you have to choose a seat, right? Because the seats cost varying amounts. Like Bradley and I, my my son, Norris, really wants to go see the Blue Man group coming up in January at the Shakespeare Festival. And so let's suppose I go to buy these tickets. I get online, and if you're like me, I want a bargain. I like bargains because I don't like paying full price and then two weeks later realizing it's on sale. That really irks me. So I'm a bargain shopper. You'll always see me at TJ Maxx, discount places. I love it. I inherited it from my mother. 
But anyway, so you go and you have to choose your seat. So if you're like me and you want to bargain, I usually, well, I'm going to start out choosing the cheapest. So I'm like, okay, I'll buy five tickets for my family, $10 a piece, $50, that's okay. But then I get online and I'm like, well, I better check out where these seats are. And I get on and I'm like, ew, they're at the very top, in the very corner, and it looks like there's a column or something in front of it because it says it has an obstructed view. And so I rethink myself. Do I want those cheap black seats that are up in the corner with an obstructed view? I mean, if I'm going to take the time to take my family to go see this gorgeous theatrical play in all its glory and in its grandeur, I think I might want some better seats than that, right? So then I say, well, okay, what's the best seats I can get then? Because I don't want that one. And I find that there's five seats on the front row. And they're the gold level seats. So I'm like, I'm going to get those. So I click five seats and I'm like, I'm going to be on the front row in the center. There's nothing obstructing my view of this performance. And who knows, they might even pick us to come up on stage because, you know, if you're sitting up front, they'll do that, right? Have you ever been to Disney World? And so then I go to hit check out, and I'm like, oh, $500 instead of 50 right? So I've got a choice to make. 50 500 What am I going to choose? See, because it's going to cost me something, right? My husband's back there saying, choose the 50 choose the 50 but it's going to cost me something. It's going to cost, it's going to come with a price tag. 50 500 Obstructed view, front row seat. See, I want to suggest to you, it's going to cost you something to get into this Word of God. It's going to cost you time every day. It might cost you your life. Because when you start eating it, it's going to change you. The things that were appeasing a few years ago, they're not going to be appeasing anymore. It might cost you some friends. When you say, I'm not going to that party, I'm not going to gossip like I used to. There might be some friends that say, you're not cool anymore. You've gotten a little too radical. You're following that word like it's the truth. So I'm not sure I want to hang out with you anymore. You see, there's a cost to following Jesus. Jesus said, the gate is narrow, the way is hard, but I'm going to tell you, it is worth every price you pay. It's worth it. It frees you from bondages and sins that you thought I'd never be free from. It cleanses you. It gives you a born-again new spirit. It matures you up. And I can tell you, whatever price you pay, he's going to return it a hundredfold in your life. When I did lose some friends, I can tell you he has replaced it with the most godly, encouraging friends that feed me that I could have ever possibly imagined. I didn't know a friendship like that could exist. But it's a choice. We can choose to pull up our seat to this table and eat And when we do, he'll bring you life and peace and joy and victory. 
And you know what's even great? As you keep eating it, it's not just going to be for you. He's going to start using you in others' life. He's going to start using you to intercede and pick up that sword to fight for other people. So I just encourage you, choose the best. You know, I'm going to close with Leviticus 24.9. It says this, talking about the showbread, the bread of his face, the bread of his presence. It said, it belongs to Aaron and his sons who are to eat it in a holy place because it is a most holy part of their regular share of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. You see, when the priest would come on the Sabbath and they would eat this, they would stay in the holy place and eat it. And you know what God says? That this is a most holy part of their offering. I looked that up. That's only said about 40 times in the Bible as being a most holy. You know what that means? That it is a holy, holy part of their offering. As the priest... Aaron and his sons came and ate. It was a holy offering to the Lord. See, as we come and we partake of his bread, whether it be in communion or whether it be in the word of God daily, it is a holy offering to him. So I just encourage you, pull up your seat, eat. The abundance is here. I want you all to stand up on your feet and hold hands with the person beside you, and we're going to pray ourselves out of here. I mean, I'm not going to stand by myself. (laughs) Father God, we just come to you today, and we thank you that your word is alive. We thank you that your word is truth, that it is feeling, and that it is satisfying. And Father, I just pray and I declare today that every person, man or woman, would be a man of your word and a woman of your word that we would eat of you daily and that by the power of your spirit, you would illuminate truths in us. I ask today that you give us a newfound hunger for you. We thank you that you didn't leave us here, forsake us, but you gave us your truth. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. So Father, I pray that as we leave this place, that when people open that word, that it will jump off the page and into their spirits, that they would be fed, that they would grow up, Lord God, to be used mightily for your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus, and everyone said, Amen.